Well, good morning. You can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Greetings from the saints in Mechanicsburg. Um, we have a new assembly there, two and a half years. And they're on a skeleton crew today. Well, I guess the, the day in Pennsylvania has passed. But uh, because of a lot of people being away, it's kind of that time of year. So uh, we started with 16. We have 34 in fellowship now. And uh, they were probably back down to 16 today. So, But the Lord was there. That's the main thing, right? So um, uh, it's good to be with you. There was something I wanted to mention. Oh, saintsserving.net, just a quick advertisement. Uh, we have some recordings of four-part a cappella and some piano recordings of hymns from the two books you have here. And then there's a few other songs that aren't in that, those hymn books, but maybe you'd enjoy them. So you could check that out, Saints Serving, so two S's in the middle there, .net. Um, and we have some CDs too we'd be glad to provide to you. I didn't bring any along with me. I probably should have, but I tried to travel light. So, Okay, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. Let's read a few verses here. We'll read up through verse 24, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. And uh, thank you very much for your prayers for uh, the week up at Boys Camp. The Lord gave so much help. Paul says here to the believers in Ephesus, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So here uh, Paul has been teaching the believers in Ephesus, and he's gotten to the point of exhorting them in light of the teaching. So chapter 4, verse 1, for example, said, I therefore the prison of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. So uh, worthy is to weigh as much as, so that your, your walk would weigh as much as your calling. Now, if you think your calling doesn't weigh very much, you won't think your walk needs to weigh very much, right? So it's really important that we really do appreciate our calling uh, that word calling uh, is connected in the Greek to the word church, because the church is ecclesia, the called out ones. So we really need to appreciate the church um, from God's perspective, which is Ephesians 1 through 3, really being taught to us. God's amazing purposes, God's power bringing us into those purposes, and then the uh, plan of God, of this nearness that we can have with God to the Father. We've been brought to the Father. We've been made part of the body of Christ. Christ is the head, we're the body. How close is that? A head and a body. The bride of Christ, the building where, which God inhabits. All these things are very elevated, right? They're very uh, magnificent. 
And so then he says, well, you ought to walk worthy of the calling with which you're, you've been called. There's two prayers, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, which are really Paul um, saying that I, I urge the Lord to enable you by the Spirit to enjoy what he's brought you into. We need that, don't we? Right? So that's appropriate to pray, that we would pray for ourselves and we pray for one another, that we'd really appreciate what we've been brought into in Christ, in Christ being a key phrase of the book of Ephesians. So we're getting here then to the exhortation part of Ephesians. A lot of Paul's epistles are like that, where you get teaching and then you get exhortation in light of the teaching. We need both, right? We need the teaching, so then we have the foundation for the exhortation. But we don't want to just have the teaching, because then we might just be heady, right? We want to walk worthy of it. We want to live it out. We want to practice it. So here he says, verse 17, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. Very strong words. Testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. You know, they used to be Gentiles. They heard the gospel of their salvation. They believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were saved. And you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. We should be different than the people around us. That verse pretty plain, right? When we come to Christ, there should be a difference. We should be changed and changing. We should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Then he describes the Gentiles uh, a bit. So this would be people that are, you know, Americans. <laughs> they happen to be Ephesians in there. But, you know, Americans are Gentiles, just like everybody else in the world other than the Jews. That, um, that walk in the futility of their mind, it says here in verse uh, 17. We shouldn't be like them. We shouldn't walk like them because we're, we are different than them. You know, walk according to who you are. We need to appreciate that. Well, he describes them. A lot of it has to do with their thinking. So he says they walk according to the futility of their mind, the emptiness of their mind, having their understanding darkened. You know, it's, there would be a lot of difference between someone who could see and someone who couldn't see in how they'd walk, right? A lot of difference between um, whether it's dark in the room or light in the room, how you'd walk, right? Well, they can't see. Those that are lost can't see. There is a difference between us and them, right? So no wonder there should be a difference in how we walk and how we conduct ourselves in this world. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, estranged from God and his life. We've been brought into a, a real living connection with a real living God. There's a radical difference here. There ought to be a radical difference in how we conduct ourselves. Because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness, or it could be translated hardness, of their heart. So their heart is, is hard, as he goes on to describe, who being past feeling. So there's this idea of a lack of sensitivity, who being past feeling. One translation says callous. Right? When you uh, get a callous, you can't feel. You, you lose that sensitivity. And so the nations around us uh, don't have sensitivity. We can understand that, right? They don't perceive things like they should. They've lost that ability to see things the way they really are, to, to grasp what's really going on here. Uh, like moral things, for example, is really probably the main thing in mind here, that they don't see things. They don't sense the, the perversion of things. They're past feeling. So there's no sensitivity. Uh, who being past feeling, so that loss of sensitivity then leads to another thing, having given themselves over to lewdness. So um, they, they, they've lost the sensitivity, and so then they, they go places they shouldn't go in their behavior. They give themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness. 
So there's, there's this no standard approach to life, right? There's not like a boundary. You can do anything you want, giving themselves over to all uncleanness um, and no stopping in how far they're willing to go. And then the last phrase is an interesting one. It says, with greediness, with greediness. So um, the Greek word, I'm going to translate it. It's not really a translation. It's not an English word, but it's helped me. You could translate it, have moreness. That's what greediness is, right? Have moreness. You always want to have more. And that's part of, that's kind of the heart of, I guess you'd say, why they cast off all the standards, why there's no stopping in how far they're willing to go, is because there's no satisfaction. And so then they try this thing, and no doubt we've experienced some of this ourselves, right? And it doesn't satisfy, and so you go on to the next thing, and it keeps degrading because you can't find satisfaction. And so you try something else that you think is going to satisfy you. And when it doesn't, then you break down the next boundary of behavior, of what's appropriate, what's uh, morally acceptable. But you have not so learned Christ. The, the Messiah changes everything. If we've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, it changes everything. And he's really calling us to live in the good of that, to live up to that. To not go back to what you used to be. You've come into the good of Christ. And his coming into the world and his coming into a life changes everything. Just think about in relation to that last thing we were just talking about, that, that greediness, that no satisfaction problem. Doesn't the Lord Jesus change that? That Christ satisfies, we sang that song. There's love and life and lasting joy, Lord Jesus found in thee. We sang that. Amen? It's true. I mean, there's Paul and Silas in the prison, Acts 16, singing. <laughs> now, what was there to make them sing? That they had gotten beat up, whipped, put in chains in the darkest dungeon? <laughs> no. There's love and life and lasting joy in the Lord Jesus. There's this reality that people that don't have Christ don't know. They don't understand. So you haven't so learned Christ. If indeed you've heard him and been taught by him, or it seems like better, um, like the New American Standard translates it, instructed in him. Some other translations would say it that way, way as well. I'm trying to find it on the page here. Yeah, there we go. It has been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. So in this uh, text, uh, a key idea is your thinking, right? He talked about mind and understanding, those kind of things. Another key idea is satisfaction. And now another key idea is truth. Truth. He says uh, you've been taught in Christ, and you've come to know Christ, and the truth is in Jesus. Reality. That's been a helpful word for me. When I see the word truth, I think reality. The way things really are. Um, the real deal. <laughs> if you can allow me to speak slang, right? When I was a youngin', uh, there was the, the song, I think it was a Coke commercial, right? 
Ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. I don't know if you remember that one, right? <laughs> Ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. That was pretty, pretty lame compared to Christ, right? <laughs> but, and of course, Coke ain't nothing like the real thing. The real thing is water, right? I mean, if you're thirsty, Coke does not quench your thirst. Water does. Um, reality. You know, you've come to know reality when you came to Christ. Amen? I mean, all those other things that you thought would make you happy, that you thought would bring joy, that you thought would bring satisfaction, were all a lie. They were a deception. Well, that's what the verse is going to say. It says that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. So it goes on. Before we, we knew the Lord, and people that still don't know the Lord are in that state of the old man. They don't have the new us because they're not in Christ. But the old us grows corrupt. Why does, the, why does it keep getting more and more corrupt? Why does people's behavior keep going downhill? Grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts deceitful desires. See, the desires represent as if, if you have this, you'll be happy. If you have this, you'll have satisfied. But the desires are deceitful. It's a lie. It won't satisfy. And so because that doesn't satisfy, then you have to go for the next thing. Maybe that's what will satisfy. And so the old man gets worse and worse. Forgive the illusion. I think about a toilet, you know, just going down and down and down, getting worse and worse. And so society does that, right, as a whole. Individuals' lives do that. But it's because of the deceitful lust. It's this lie. They keep getting offered up things. Maybe it started with Coke, and then maybe it went on to Coke. Cocaine, you know, or whatever else. Some, some other thing to try to get meaning and life and reality and satisfaction and joy. And they don't work. And it's not as if that's just, oh, well, it didn't work. It ruins lives. People go downhill. So don't live that way. You know Christ. So instead, with a renewed mind, you have a different way of thinking. You know things that other people don't know because you know Christ. You know the Lord Jesus. That you should put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness or and holiness. Or again, as the New American Center says, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. See, righteousness and holiness in this verse are really flowing out from truth. We can understand that, right? Is that if I come to know the truth, the reality, I've come to know Christ the one who really satisfies, then I can come to see things the way they really are, and then, yeah, I will have sensitivity to things. Then I will perceive things that are right and wrong and that are good and bad, that are beautiful and that aren't beautiful, that are holy and attractive, because I've come to know Christ, and I see things for what they really are. Praise the Lord for that. Amen? You know, light, what a blessing light is that we can see because of the Lord Jesus. This evening, I want to continue on in the text here, but uh, I thought this morning that we'd spend some time in John chapter 4 to illustrate um, this truth here that we've been looking at here. John chapter 4. I do want to actually start in John 3, the last two verses of John 3. It 
John 3 and verse 35. Can we just pray a minute um, again? Our Father, we don't, do want to ask you just again uh, for your help that by your Spirit, that the Lord Jesus, in his richness and his completeness, um, that by your Spirit we might perceive that and it might really uh, change our thinking and change our heart and thus change our behavior. And we pray it uh, for his glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Here in John 3.35, it says something um, transcendent, something magnificent. It says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. So this relationship of the Father and the Son, which was before the foundation of the world, so is the ultimate reality. That was helpful to me to realize, right? If we say that, the Lord Jesus says in John 17, that you loved me before the foundation of the world, that means that the love of the Father for the Son is the ultimate reality. <laughs> yeah, everything else just kind of flew, flowed out of that, the foundation of the world. It's like we think that this world is so real, but it's not. Some people call it a stage, right? That's kind of what it is, right? It's not so real after all. But this love of the Father and the Son, that's reality. So there's that uh, eternal fellowship. And the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. So everything has to do with that. Everything is centered in the Son. The Father's given all things into his hands. So ultimately, for you and for I, the real issue is... Um, our relationship with the Son, because he's the center. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. And so the next verse says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. See, it has everything to do with your relationship with the Son. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son, that Greek word is actually a little bit different. It's not believe so much as it carries the idea of submit to. He who does not believe or submit to who the Son is, you might say shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So it all has to do with what you've done with the Son. <laughs> One side, if you believed on the Son, you have everlasting life. The other side, if you won't submit to who the Son is, who the Lord Jesus is, you won't see life, but the wrath of God abides on you. <laughs> so what have you done with the Son? You could ask that question this morning. What have you done with the Son of God, the Lord Jesus? If you haven't come to the place of believing on him, accepting that he really is the only way to be right with God, then you're on the wrath of God abiding on you. That's in the present tense. It will forever, right? That's what hell is. But you're really currently under the wrath of God, which is a solemn thing to think about. But if you have believed on the Lord Jesus, you have everlasting life. Now, John chapter 4 flows out of that. So let's read there. Therefore... When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. The word of God is marvelous. Um, with the Lord's help, I'm going to restrain myself. I love it. Like the, it's, and I, it's not like I've figured all this out, but when you study the Word of God, every little word has meaning. Now, there's no other book like that. I mean, you might like Shakespeare or something, but 
there is no comparison, right? You might like to read your novels, but there is no comparison that you could sit and just read it over and over again, and you learn more and more. And like, wow, I didn't even realize. Why did he mention Joseph there? That's magnificent. <laughs> I just have really, really enjoyed meditating on John 4 and just chew over the phrases. Like, why does it say that? What, what kind of significance is in that phrase? Here he mentions that the well, or the, the place where he came, is near where Jacob gave the land to his son Joseph. We'll come back to that. Now J Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus in a wearied state by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. So this word draw is going to be a key word in John chapter 4. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So it's just him and this woman. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? So uh, last weekend I was with uh, Dave, the older uh, Dixon, and uh, he was letting me know about his trip in, in Israel. Evidently they came to this well. So um, I used to say, you know, the well maybe it was 30, 50 foot deep. Apparently it's 300 foot deep or something like that. They were actually there and, you know, dropped something down and waited and waited and waited and waited. <laughs> so it really was deep. At least today it's 300 foot deep, um, and evidently it was deep then. There's a difference in this text between a well and a fountain, a well and a fountain. So it's very timely for me to come to Southern California and talk about water. You guys think a lot about it, a well and a fountain. So um, water, you know, we have groundwater. It's down below the water. It's running through the soils or the you know, limestone if you're in where I am. There's water in, in the ground. And if you dig deep enough, you'll hit it uh, in Jacob's time. You know, they would have hand-dug it, of course. They didn't have drill rigs. They could drill down and auger the, the soil out. Today, that's what we'd do, you know, just be a well like that. But in their day, it would have to be a well that was 6, 10 foot wide, whatever it might be in diameter. I don't know. How big was it, Brother Dave? Do you remember? Six foot in diameter. That's what I'm picturing. They may maybe stone line it to keep it from falling in. So once it's dug, there's the, there's the water, but there's the water way down there. And so the only way to get to the water is to have something to draw with, you know, a pot, a water pot. So the Lord Jesus talks about having water. The woman says, sir, you have nothing to draw with. <laughs> and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Interesting. Then there's a fountain. The Lord Jesus says in verse um, 13, uh, Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So the word fountain goes right next to the word springing up. We sometimes call it a spring. So that's different, right? You don't have to dig down to it. It actually comes to you. 
Why is that? Well, there's so much water down there that if there's a natural break in the rock or if you punch a hole in the rock, it's going to come up. So the water rains on the mountains. It gets underneath a rock shelf. And underneath the rock shelf, the rock's holding it down under there, but the pressure on the water is hundreds of feet maybe above the ground, up in the mountains there. And so if there's a, a break in the rock or if I can punch a hole in the rock, it's going to come up to that elevation. You know? Now once it gets above ground, of course, it just makes a fountain like that. It doesn't actually shoot up to 100 feet maybe, but it comes to you. There's so much of it. So there's this difference between a well and a fountain. The well you need something to draw with. That's the key. You need something to draw with a well. All right, let's talk a little bit more about it. Let's try to go through the, the thought here. So the Lord Jesus asked her for uh, a drink. She says, verse 9, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a, a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? So this was unusual. Um, not only was she a Samaritan, but she was a woman, and he was a man, and he was a Jew. So they didn't expect any kind of correspondence to happen because the Jewish men would have thought they were above the Samaritan women, for sure. So, now what was in this situation was this, in her mind. See, she was above the Jewish man. Why? Because she had a water pot. And he didn't. So, she gives that response, verse 9. Jesus answered in verse 10, his response to her is, If you knew the gift of God and who it is. Let's think about that a minute. Think about the Son of God who was before the foundation of the world. The Father loves the Son. All things are given in his hands. Here's the Son of God standing at the well next to her, and she thinks she's got the upper hand because she is the water pot. If you knew the gift of God, the Holy Spirit evidently is what he's speaking of, and who it is, who it is. Isn't that a problem we have in our life? We forget who it is, who the Lord Jesus is, and we kind of bring him down to our level. Lose touch with that reality of who the Lord Jesus is. If we only knew, I mean, he is who he is. It's just we need to know it, right? We need to have that in our mind and our thinking. She didn't, of course, understand that. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says you give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, which is this abundant water idea, consistent with the idea of a fountain. You know, it's flowing water. It just keeps coming. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. What a helpful education she was giving him. Uh, you have nothing to draw with, I do, and the well is deep. I'm the one that can get water, you can't. Where then do you get that living water? Just a little practical application there. Sometimes we're very practical with the Lord, right? Maybe we need to be a little bit less practical. Now, I'm not saying when we pray we shouldn't bring real needs before him, but... Let's not let those real needs from our little perspective offset who it is that we're talking to. The Son of God, who God the Father has given all things into his hand. Are you greater than our father, verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Sometimes that can blind us to the sufficiency of Christ, other people that we're impressed with, other, other resources that we're impressed with. And it offsets the ability to be able to see the Son of God who's been given all things into his hands. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. There's a key idea. You drink of this water, you'll thirst again. And so then what are you going to have to do? 
you have to come back to the well with a water pot and draw water because you thirsted again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him, better than not thirsting, it's not like you're just going to be filled up this much, right? It's that you're going to be filled up to overflowing. The water that I give him will become in him, by the Holy Spirit in us, will become in him a fountain of water springing up unto everlasting life. There's so much, it's super abounding. That's quite a difference, isn't it? The well that's way down there that I need a water pot to get to, and then a fountain within, not outside that I have to go to, but within that overflows. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. And notice that she got it, at least the principle. She says, Sir, give me this water, that two things, that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. So there's that idea of drawing again, nor come here to draw. You could say, in a sense, she was um, enslaved to that well, wasn't she? She had to keep coming back to draw from it. And if she could not thirst, she could get delivered from having to keep coming back to draw. Keep coming back to draw. So, the Lord Jesus, of course, knowing everything, brings to her attention the real wells in her life. I mean, of course, it's fine to go to a well and draw water from the well. She says, give me this water. So, for her to be able to have the water available to her, she needs to deal with something. She needs to face, with, face something. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. She was just living with him. She hadn't bothered getting married. In that you spoke truly. <laughs> so um, you, you begin to get some light here of what was going on in her life. We don't know a lot about her, but we know that she had had five husbands, so married, divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced, married, divorced. Don't bother getting married. Just live with them. What does that show you? Given up, right? Doesn't work. Doesn't satisfy. We have no idea why she got married and divorced. We have no idea. But we do know that her life was empty. Life was empty. But now she met the seventh man, right? Six men so far, but now the seventh man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Number of perfection in the Bible, number of completeness. You have well said, I have no husband, <laughs> in that you spoke truly. She wasn't being very honest, was she? When he said, go call your husband, she says, I don't have a husband. Well, she kind of didn't, right? Because she hadn't married the guy. <laughs> There's an awful lot below the surface there. <laughs> I have no husband but she was kind of hiding sin in her life. She wanted to be true. He says, well, now you spoke truly. Well, now she's starting to feel exposed. Exposed for her sin, exposed for her emptiness, her hollowness. Incidentally, I was, uh, there was a young lady, 24, um, Puerto Rican. She got saved this spring in our assembly. And uh, I went over to visit with her and her boyfriend. And uh, we were talking. It became apparent I should talk about John 4 with her. And uh, she, uh, as we're reading through this, I just explained things, kind of, I didn't get too far into it, but
but she identified with this text 100% to the point that she's like, oh my God, oh my God, that's exactly how I've lived. And she kept going to wells that couldn't satisfy. And she was addicted. That's what happens, right? Whatever it was, marijuana, dance parlors, whatever it was, guys, boyfriends, you know. But they don't satisfy. And now she'd come to the seventh man. And she was delivered. She was set free because he satisfies. Well, this woman here, first, and that's kind of what happens to us, right? We come out into the light, you know, and, and uh, it's showing us up. And so we try to dodge it. And so that's what she does. Shift it. Shift it away from herself. Sir, she says, verse 19, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So kind of get into this religious conversation. And get it away from herself. Let's talk worship. You know, there's this kind of this ongoing dispute. You know, Jews say Jerusalem. We think this mountain. That's, what, what do you think about that? What's your opinion? So now it kind of doesn't have anything to do with her. Well, of course, the Lord Jesus and his infinite wisdom is going to bring it right back around to her. Though he kind of talks about this worship idea. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Interesting, he introduces that idea of the Father, that close uh, relationship with God as Father, that you actually know him as Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvations of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, notice this idea of truth, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So the hour is coming and now is when um, all those seen things were going to be taken away. Um, maybe you can take a look at it if you haven't read it before, but the dedication of the temple was quite an amazing day. Thousands of sacrifices trumpets blowing, people in special robes, a smells filling the air, gold glittering, thousands of, you know, a big crowd around saying, you know, the Lord is good, his mercy endures forever. And so kind of like a fan at a baseball stadium, when, when you're there and the popcorn's happening and the, um, the people are doing the wave, do you do the wave out here, I assume? When people are doing the wave, you might not even know who the quarterback is, and yet you do the wave. That was purposeful. I know there's not a quarterback in baseball. I was trying to illustrate the idea that you could be that far removed, you don't even know what's going on in the field, but you feel like a worshiper, worshiper which fans are kind of like that, right? They're essentially worshipers, if they're fanatics. <laughs> and so you get into the moment and the situation, and you look like a worshiper, or a fan in the case of the baseball illustration, at the temple. There were true worshipers there, but there were other people that weren't true worshipers. It wasn't genuine. Right? It wasn't real on the inside. And those who worship, uh, God wants those who worship in spirit and truth. Spirit meaning it's genuine, it's on the inside, it's actually coming from me. Not from the external stimulation that makes me feel worshipful, but that I actually have a real vital relationship with a real God, the Father. I know him, um, I'm in fellowship with him, and I'm enjoying him, and therefore I worship. And it's true worship then coming from a true worshiper. Long time I thought this text said, God wants true worship. But it actually doesn't say that. See, he's after true worshipers. 
That's actually even deeper, isn't it? Like I have to actually be a true worshiper. I actually am in a real living vital fellowship where I'm enjoying the Lord. I'm enjoying the Father. I'm enjoying the Son. And therefore, the overflow of a full heart comes out where true worship indeed does come out in spirit and in truth. And so for this woman, maybe she, she as hollow as could be, could go to this mountain or to Jerusalem to a place that made her feel in touch with God. <laughs> and she was as hollow as could be. And she'd act like a worshiper, and she'd look like a worshiper maybe, because of the external stimulation making it kind of exciting to worship God. But she, was, she didn't know the Lord. She was in sin. She was empty as could be. And so the Lord has brought it right back around. The, the, the light is shining up, and there's not truth there. There's not reality there. So she says, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ, but you have not so learned Christ, Ephesians said. I know that when Messiah is coming who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? This is one of those verses that was like a, moment, you know, like, wow, that is so beautiful. When you first read it, you don't think that maybe, but as you meditate on the text, think about it. The woman then left her water pot. Wow. The beginning of this conversation, she had the water pot, right? And now that she's come to meet Christ, the water pot, what do you need a water pot for you escaped, Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 1, you've escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. Right? She was set free from it through Christ. So she left her water pot, went into the city, and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Now, had he gone through her whole life, told her all things that she ever did? Not in detail, but in principle, right? What had she done? Her whole life, she'd been going to wells and going to wells and going to wells, trying to find satisfaction, not finding it, getting, it, getting enslaved, thinking you need a water pot, you know? What's your water pot? What wells have you been going to? Or have you learned Christ? You know, have you come to the one who satisfies so much so that you overflow? that you're enjoying him. Have you come to Christ and found him to be sufficient enough, but then going back to some wells and thinking you need the water pot? That's possible, right? Isn't that what Ephesians was saying? Don't do it. Put off. Put on. Live in the good of this that you've been brought into in Christ. Don't go back to that. You found the real thing. You found the real thing. So are you a true worshiper, that you're actually enjoying Christ? Don't go for the simulated worshiper. <laughs> Don't go for the make me feel worshipful. God got rid of that, right, with the temple and all the externals, got rid of it. Now, um, you know, in the New Testament, there's not temples with gold and all that sights and sounds that would make you feel worshipful. It's just the inside. It comes from the inside. Is it possible? 
By the Holy Spirit? Is it possible by the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. Is Christ enough? Absolutely. So the Lord encourages us. We'll look at um, some exhortations that come out of this reality. The next verse in Ephesians says, Therefore, having put off falsehood. I think it's that idea that we, that we put off the fake because we've come to the real in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, our Father, it is an amazing thing that you have shared your Son with us. That from before the foundation of the world, before there was anything, including us, including the things that seemed to be so important, that seemed that we have to have them if we're going to be happy, that before that, you loved your Son, and that you've shared him with us. Thank you for that. And thank you that he is enough in himself, in his work, that he is enough. He's enough the heart and mind to fill, that there is love and life and lasting joy in him. Forgive us for um, ways in which we've, we thought he wasn't, or at least we acted like he wasn't. Maybe our minds got polluted by this world and all of its babbling, all of its noise. Maybe the light kind of got turned down in our understanding. Our alertness got um, dimmed and we thought that this world really had something to offer, that people in the world actually were really full and overflowing and joyful because they were acting like they were. We ask you for forgiveness for that, and we pray, Father, that you would help us to live in the good of your Son, that we would enjoy him and him alone, that we wouldn't turn to wells that cannot satisfy, that we wouldn't leave the, the fountain of living water and hew out for ourselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. Thank you so much for your Son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how you speak to us through your word, and pray that uh, each of your people here might just be abounding in Christ with thanksgiving. We pray in his precious name, amen.